Dan. Um, there are some weeks I'd rather just sit there and listen to you play for the next 30 minutes. Um, such a gift. Well, if you have your Bibles, would you join me in opening them to Mark chapter 1? And feel free to use a blue pew Bible in front of you. You'll find Mark 1 on page 836. Um, before I get going, I want to uh, really just talk about something we're going to be implementing here in 2018. Um, and it is going to be a corporate prayer and worship service. Um, now, we are going to do the first Wednesday night of the even months. All right, so got that down right. First Wednesday night of the even, even months. Uh, first one being Wednesday, February 7th, 7.30 to 8.30 p.m. Um, child care will be available through age five. And I'll be able to share then why uh, just been on my heart to go this route. But the, the short version is just been a pressing desire um, for this church to just have a time of just angst-filled worship and prayer. And, and to make that as just part of our kind of rhythm and, and, and it's just to come together as a church. And so there's corporate prayer, right, is where any two or three are gathered. So there's corporate prayer happening throughout our ministry, throughout the weeks, and in grace groups, um, at the committee levels, amongst the elders. Um, if you're getting coffee with somebody from church and just sharing about your life and praying, like that's corporate prayer. Um, but I also want to just have an on-ramp where the entire church has an opportunity to come and just pray together, right? Pray in concentric circles where uh, we pray for immediate needs in the congregation, right? And there are many. Um, and then there's just a prayer for our church and our witness in this community, in this region, right? That God would just choose to pour out his blessing on our vision and mission, not for our sake, but that so his name would be high and lifted up to make disciples for his glory. And then just our national impact, our global impact through uh, our 20 missionary partners and families. And so um, bottom line is we long for God to do a mighty work. And we long for his spirit to just be glad to move powerfully. And, and, and we, are, we are called to do hard work, right? We are called to do the hard work of the ministry, all of us, every member, none more important than the next. And, and Paul says, man, we plant and we water and we plant and we water, but only God can make it grow. And so part of planting and watering is a corporate commitment to pray and to storm the throne to ask God to carry out his purposes in such a way that actually transforms lives. And, and so um, we, uh, first Wednesday of the evening months, mark your calendar. Um, we're asking our small groups not to meet that week, to encourage all their small group members to come and just be here. Um, ask that you'd be a part of it and that you would allow that to be an established rhythm as part of your calendar this year. Well, this morning we forge ahead in Mark chapter 1. If you uh, missed last week, I was able to share a, more about why we're going through a gospel verse by verse, um, why specifically Mark. Uh, so if you missed it, I would encourage you to check that out either online or through the church app. But um, um, one thing I want to repeat that I said last week was that um, the, the book of Mark, the, the gospel of Mark, it's fast. Okay, if, if you just say, like, I'm going to start in Mark 1, and you, it, just a couple minutes in of reading, like you are just um, knee-deep into his earthly ministry right out of the gate. All right, you might have noticed last week, there is no Christmas in Mark. There, there's no birth story. You, you don't understand who, who his family was or where he came from. He is just off and running right out of the gate, and he, it's almost like he wants to get your heart rate just start rising as you read it. And, and I say that again because I think we're going to feel that 
a little bit this morning together, okay? In 11 verses, Mark covers Jesus' baptism, his temptation in the desert, the launch of his earthly ministry, and the calling of his first disciples. And, and so as I was kind of thinking about and preparing and laying this out, I could have gone another route, right? You have kind of these four scenes, and you could have said, okay, I'm just going to take, uh, really drag this out and go four weeks, just go two or three verses at a time, go deep into each of those scenes, because the other Gospels kind of fill in a lot of the detail that we could have um, easily done that. In, in some ways, to be honest, my initial preference is to do that, right? I think it'd be easier to do that. Um, but I kept coming back to the fact that I don't think Mark intended his gospel to be read and interpreted that slowly. I, I think he only gave you two or three verses because he wanted you to see these things together. How, what, what, what is the connective tissue of these four scenes? Because remember, Mark is vivid he is very calculated, but he's just not overly descriptive. And he's connecting these un seemingly unconnected scenes in such a way uh, that I think we can really just benefit from taking them together. And so Mark is like the man or woman who doesn't need a lot of words to make an impact. You know those kind of people in your life? Like you're in a meeting and like they don't say anything for like an hour and then they say like one line and you're just like, bam! Like, where did that come from? Like, you've just been sitting there for like an hour, and then, and like, that's the only thing you remember the rest of the night? Just man or woman, a few words, but they make it count, right? And then on the other side, you have people that say a lot, but, or speak a lot, but never actually say anything, right? Uh, I mean, all of us want to consider, like, we're the former, but most of us are probably like the latter, right? We just kind of talk a lot, but like, so what are you actually saying right now? But, but we have that man or woman, like, it's just nothing, 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 and then bam, one line, and it's just like, that's kind of like Mark, right? Just doesn't need a lot of words to really get his message across. And so with that said, we have a tall task ahead of us this morning. And as we walk through these separate scenes back to back and dig into them, I think God has something to say to us individually. But then at the end, I want to say, what do we know from all these together? Why did Mark put this all back to back? So what's the takeaway? That's what we're looking for. So would you join me, or you can follow along on the screen. We're going to go Mark 1, verses 9 through 20. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. All right, four scenes to look at. First, the baptism. 
the, the baptism, where, where we left off last week, was John, this messenger, proclaiming a message of repentance and forgiveness out in the wilderness. And then those who uh, came and, and believed, he baptized into the Jordan River. And, and at the end, he said, listen, uh, don't just look at me. There is one who is coming who is mightier than I. And then in classic Mark fashion, a verse later, here he is. Right? Like Jesus just shows up at the Jordan from Nazareth. Nazareth is 60 miles away from the Jordan River because he's coming from the region of Galilee, which is further away than Jerusalem, right? So multiple day trip. Um, probably has blisters on the bottom of his feet, and yet he never cursed under his breath because he's Jesus. All right? So he just kind of shows up. And then, again, Mark is, is quick here, but he's vivid. And I just want you to notice he's calculated in what he says Because in this way, he portrays Jesus as just any of the others that have come out to get baptized. And so what happens when you read this gospel, a lot of questions just kind of pop up. So the the initial kind of obvious question is, wait, why is Jesus getting baptized? Like, he doesn't need to confess anything. He doesn't need to repent of anything. He doesn't need forgiveness for anything. Why does he need to be baptized? And, And the answer is, yeah, exactly. This is the first sign of Jesus entering into and identifying with the ones he's come to save, the ones he's come to rescue. If you think about it, the whole incarnation of of God taking on flesh is defined by humility. It's Jesus leaning into our framework, and it just puts on display when he chooses to come and just be baptized by a mere man. Think about this. He comes to choose to be baptized by a man that is saved because of him. One commentator, I love the way he put this. He said this was, quote, the beginning of his humiliation. It began in the river, and it culminated at the cross, Like, this is massive. This is like a commanding general of an army strapping on his helmet, diving into the trenches on the front lines alongside enlisted non-ranking men. And church, this is your Jesus choosing to be shoulder to shoulder with you by choice. Like, do you see this? Can, can, Can you feel this? Can you picture yourself there that this is your Savior? Not somebody you need to go on a secret, meaningless Um, search for. He's not this kind of elusive character that you have to go find if you're lucky enough. This is the one who has come to you, and he's come to serve you. And isn't it amazing? His entry into ministry is not a grand press conference. It's a lowly baptism. He doesn't get raised on a pedestal for all to see. He gets lowered into the water. This is the introduction to your Savior. And then Mark in a single verse, paints a scene where the entire trinity is present. Okay, one of the most complex, elusive doctrines in the entire Christian faith is just laid bare for all to see in one sentence. Jesus, the Son, emerges. The heavens tear open. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove. Not as a dove, like a dove. And the Father speaks. And here he is, our triune God. And so, um, okay, what's the Trinity? (laughs) You got some time? Um, It's probably best to start by saying what it's not. The Trinity is not three separate gods working together. For we know from Scripture that the Lord our God is one. 
The Trinity is not God taking three different forms or manifestations at different times that he can just kind of rotate among. For we see right here that all three are present at the same time. Therefore, the Trinity is one God in three persons, and he's existed this way for all of eternity. Bruce Ware, one of my professors down at Southern, words it this way. He says, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not each one-third God, but each is fully God, equally God. And this is true eternally and simultaneously. So, So the members of the Trinity are equal in value, equal in worth in the Godhead, and yet they clearly play very different, distinct roles. Fully God And yet the Son willingly submits to the Father, and the Spirit submits willingly to the Father and the Son. So here's the thing about the Trinity. The doctrine is clear, but it's also complex. It's very evident in the Scriptures, and yet its depth and its height is just above us and below us. And there have been several illustrations people have used to describe the Trinity, to try and like make sense of it more, to try and kind of get it down to our level. None really captures it, because I don't think anything is really supposed to make it down to our level. But there's one that's close, or at least one that um, uh, I, I think helped paint the picture for me. And, and um, this is dangerous territory when I talk about music, all right? So bear with me. But it's the difference between unison and harmony in singing. Unison would be three voices singing together, the same notes with redundancy, and no texture, no complementing of one another, just stacked on top. And that's not what the Trinity is. It's not just three gods piled on top of one another, but harmony, where three voices sing together, and there's a glorious unity in the texture, perfect complements of one another, each singing the same thing, but with a distinctness and role that makes the song dance. It's not perfect, but it's a good picture of the Trinity. And so um, the the last time a scene like this in Mark chapter 1 occurred in the Bible was where? He just painted the scene in one verse. Where have we seen this before? You go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, literally the first verses of the Bible. Listen, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. The darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Trinity present at the inauguration of the world's creation, and now the Trinity present at the inauguration of the world's renewal. Both done through the Son to the glory of the Father. We could go plenty deeper about this, of course, but, but this week in our grace groups, we're going to be digging into why, if you abandon the Trinity or just ignore it, how you lose the entire gospel. You need have that doctrine in order for the whole gospel to be held together. We'll be talking about that in our groups. encourage you to uh, join one if you're not. It's that vital. Um, but let's keep going. That was the baptism. Second, we see the testing. As we read, after the baptism, the Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. I mentioned last week how often Mark uses the word immediately in his gospel, somewhere around 45 times. And it occurs mostly in the first half of the book, right? Mark just wants you to start running. He wants your heart rate to start rising and increase the pace. And that's why him kind of talking about immediately is why I think it's necessary to take these things together. He doesn't want you to stop at the baptism. He wants to see you. He was baptized and then immediately gets put into the wilderness. 
And it's such an ironic introduction to a king, to the Messiah, to, to the Christ. He's, he's humbled in baptism, and then he is sent alone in the wilderness to fend off wild animals and attempting schemes of Satan. Like, if you were asked, hey, could you write the script for how Jesus came into the world? Like, in your mind, how, how do you think Jesus should be introduced? The Messiah of the world. Like, this is the last script you would write. This would be nowhere on your radar, and yet this is the way God operates us, operates and introduces Jesus to us. And again, in just two verses, he talks about his temptation. Uh, many of you know that Matthew and Luke, that they, they devote a lot of time to this scene. They, 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 they include a lot of detail around the temptations. They, it gives you the dialogue between Jesus and Satan. But Mark, um, wild animals and Satan. It's all you got. So, so why? Why even include this then? Wouldn't it have had just make more sense to go from the baptism where, where, where the father affirmed Jesus and just skipped right to the next scene where he's going to launch his ministry? Like this seems kind of pointless if he's not really going to give you a lot of detail. Here's why it's tucked in here. Right out of the gate, the Holy Spirit inspiring Mark as he writes puts on display that a commissioning by God is often followed by a time of testing. A commissioning by God is often followed by a time of testing. God has inaugurated the renewal of creation by sending his son, commissioning his son, and then the spirit drives him in the wilderness to be tested by Satan. As well, like This is not a mistake. This was not a miscommunication between the Father and the Spirit, right? Where, like, the Father sees Jesus going to the desert. He's like, Spirit, where? Like, no. Like, that's not what we talked about. Like, it's not what's happening here. Jesus didn't take a wrong turn because he had water in his eyes after his baptism. All right? Like, this was intentional, purposeful going into the desert. Because a commissioning by God is often followed by a time of testing. You want to know why Mark included wild animals in there? Remember that he is writing to the church in Rome, primarily, that's his primary audience, probably somewhere in the mid to late 50s AD, a time that we know historically was of intense persecution towards Christians, this kind of new pop-up movement that was spreading everywhere, and we know the Roman Empire doesn't like pop-up movements that spread everywhere. It's where the Apostle Paul would be martyred a few years later, along with Peter. And during this time, Christians were being thrown to wild animals to be devoured and killed. Because they wanted the others to see this is what's going to happen if you continue. And so you see the power of Mark here, encouraging the church that no matter what they do to you, you are more than conquerors through Christ who is subjected to Satan and the animals and he overcame them. He is subtly saying to the church, listen, the worst they can do is throw you to the wild animals. But even that won't separate you from the love of Christ for all of eternity. A commissioning by God is often followed by a time of testing. We'll come back to this, but let's keep going. On to the third scene, the, the launch. Right? So we have the baptism, we have the testing, and now we have the launch. And, and, and let me just read it again. He says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand Repent and believe in the gospel. Again, questions abound, unless that's just me and the way I read it. But I want to know, why, why was John arrested? We're not even told why. 
Or was it intentional that Jesus had to wait until he was arrested before he launched his ministry, right? So, so Mark just kind of drops this in and then goes on, but he will come back to it later in the book, right? There's a little, there's a little cliffhanger for you, all right? Do we know what cliffhanger is? Okay, last year I took a lot of grief because nobody knew what clickbait was when I used it, all right? So, but, but cliffhanger, Google it, just not right now. Um, he'll pick it up later. But either way, Jesus comes into Galilee, his home region, and we see his first words, words that will serve as a kind of vision statement for his three-year ministry. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Every strong leader has a compelling vision or, or message that he represents and carries out, and Jesus just headlines this. And since we're seeing all these kind of seemingly separate scenes all at once, we, we again, we kind of notice some connective tissue here. Because just as Mark connected the baptism to creation in Genesis 1, now he connects Jesus' mission and vision to what existed at first in the garden back in Genesis 3. Do, do, do you notice this? He says, the time is fulfilled. Well, what time? The time that has been foreshadowed and promised ever since sin entered the world, ever since the world was fractured, God's perfect kingdom was done away with that existed at first. And, and now the time is fulfilled. The, the seed promised in Genesis 3 right after the fall that a, uh, that a seed will come from the woman to crush the head of the serpent. The offspring promised in Genesis 12 to Abraham that kings will come from him. The son promised to David in 2 Samuel 7 that he will come establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The time is fulfilled. It's here. Ever since the beginning, every single promise that has ever been promised is finding its yes in him now. Like you cannot overstate this. I, I want us to feel this a little bit. So let me just put it this way. Um, what's the number one day that you had anticipated in your life? What's the number one day that you just longed for and anticipated going up until it happened, okay? Maybe it was a wedding day. Maybe it was paying off your mortgage. Maybe that day's coming. Maybe it's not, all right? Maybe it was a dream vacation that you had planned and just waited for and saved for for years and now you're going. Maybe it was getting that high school diploma on stage or, or your college diploma. Maybe it was closing on your first home. Maybe it was having a child. But here's what I want to ask. Did you ever get to that day after longing for it for so long and just being like, whoa, it's, it's here? Like it's kind of an eerie feeling, isn't it? Like, like you've longed for it, you've waited for it. This date has been in your mind for as long as you can remember, and now it is here. And it's kind of strange, like it's come. Like that is just a microcosm. That's just a shadow of what this moment is in Mark chapter 1. Jesus is saying, the time is fulfilled. Like the time. The time of all times. It's fulfilled right now because the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom where the vertical relationship between God and man is reestablished. Where the horizontal relationships between man and woman is reestablished. And where that longing for peace, that longing for things to be well with my soul, that longing to be done searching. It's exhausting to search for purpose and for meaning and for reconciliation. And it was all lost in sin. And now, in Jesus, it's at hand. The time is here. 
The kingdom has begun. Two proclamations followed by two responses that are needed. Jesus says simply, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent, we talked about last week, the same call that John sent out. To not just confess, confess and acknowledge wrongdoing. We can all do that pretty easily and just keep doing it. It's not enough to just acknowledge something is wrong, but repentance takes it a step further to confess and then turn from that sin, to, to go the other direction and turn from the wrong and in its place toward the gospel. Jesus says, believe in the gospel. At this point in the first century, the word gospel was actually a common word. It's not one that was ever really correlated with faith or with God. It was used all throughout the Roman Empire to basically just be in breaking news. Uh, Here's life-changing news, a gospel. And Jesus takes this familiar word and he redeploys it for God's kingdom to repent and believe in the cosmic history-making news, the gospel. And here's why he's unique. Jesus is not only preaching the gospel, He is the gospel. To believe the gospel is to believe him. To trust in him and the work that he will be doing. And the people hearing this, obviously they don't have the full picture of what this means yet. But he is making it clear. Believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And here we see the one vital difference between the gospel and every other religion or belief set in the world. Every belief system in the world other than um, Christianity is, says, this is what you need to do in order to get right with God. Okay, here's what you need to do. you got to follow it. you got to do pretty well. And, and just kind of offer it up to God. And then um, we initiate. And the God or the gods or whoever we believe in, they decide to respond. To either accept or reject it. The gospel is the only belief. In the world that says, no, God initiates. He does something to come to us. He offers the blessing and we either accept or reject it. The vision of Jesus' ministry is a compelling one that God came down. He showed up at the Jordan. We didn't go search for him. If only we'd receive him. Moving to the fourth and final scene, the call. Jesus comes upon these brothers, Simon and Andrew, and he simply says, follow me. Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And again, on repeat, what do we see? The initiator initiating. In ancient Jewish culture, students chose the rabbis, not the other way around. Okay, so scores and scores of students would vie for the attention, acceptance of a rabbi, and a rabbi would sit back, all these people coming to him and just say, "Um, I'll let you, and I'll let you come and study under him, and everybody else had to go home. But here we see over and over again, Jesus flips the script. He initiates. He casts the net out to Simon and Andrew, and then later to James and John, and says, follow me. And it's their It's up to them to respond. And in both cases, they follow him. And again, classic Mark fashion, they do so immediately. When they, what they saw in Jesus, the offer that was put to them was seen in their eyes as the most important offer they've ever received. And they accepted immediately. And so listen carefully. We don't choose God. 
God chooses us. Any heart who receives the grace to see Jesus for who he really is cannot deny him. When I pray for unbelieving friends and family, it's not so much that they would figure it out and decide to follow Christ, as much as it is a prayer that God would be gracious enough to reveal himself to them and know that if he does, they will respond. And the Bible is clear that surely we have a role to play in accepting Christ for salvation, but be rest assured that role is secondary. The work of God is primary. The initiator initiates. Okay, here is why these four scenes belong to be taken together. Jesus is commissioned by the Father to go into the world, and in turn, Jesus is now commissioning people to follow him where they can become fishers of men and play a part in the onset of God's kingdom expansion. And hear me, we're coming back to this, a commissioning of by God is often followed by a time of testing. And it's a message that you just don't really hear, especially in American Christianity anymore. But in Mark, we're going to see it all the way through. You want to follow God? You want to be commissioned as a fisher of men? Then you should expect a time of testing. Mark included Jesus' temptation in the wilderness because that is what his followers can expect upon their commissioning. The power of sin and Satan has been broken by Christ alone, but the presence of sin and Satan still remains in the world. And so we're not called to be Jesus. For only he could and did overcame the power of the enemy, but we're called to follow Jesus. And that means through him, we can and must overcome the presence of sin and testing in our lives. It was true for these four men who were called in Mark 1. Again, they didn't fully get it at the time. But we know the end of the story. And it's still true today that when followers of Christ are commissioned, they are often tested soon thereafter. And so there's a couple different ways you can look at this. In some ways, every follower of Christ has been commissioned. Right? Every follower of Christ has been commissioned and called and equipped to make fishers of men. But I think there's another side to it too, that there's a sense of a, a greater commissioning that happens at certain points in our lives. Where God's calling you to something new. He's call, calling you to greater service, a greater role, um, that, that he has now commissioned you to play a part in the expansion of his kingdom. And just know, church, it's going to come with testing. Just met with new believers in our church this past week who are going through it as we speak. It occurs when we get a new calling or commission to serve him in a greater capacity that we should come to expect that when God uses us and deploys us, it's not going to keep us from greater testing and temptation. It's not follow God, he'll take all your problems away. In fact, it's probably follow God, you might get some more problems. It might subject you to more temptation. And so... Are you being tested right now? Maybe others can see that the testing is happening. Maybe, and probably most likely, it's internal. And you're up against it in a number of ways in being tempted. And I just want to share with you, it's possible that could actually be a good sign. If you feel like you're just up against a greater time of testing, it could be that you are on the right path. 
And if you feel like, man, I was tested and I failed, I guess I'm just failing out, I'm off God's team, that is where the grace of Jesus Christ comes in. He overcame. You get back on, you get back on the path. And he will equip you more down the road. Listen, Satan hates it when God commissions people to do kingdom work. And so whoever does get pushed to the top of his priority list, to tear down, to lure away, to water down, like that's going to happen all over. Like we just watched this morning a prayer of commissioning for our 2018 elder board. And no, I didn't rig it to be the same day. But listen, I can nearly guarantee you, I shared this with the men yesterday morning when we met, that this week they are going to be top targets for Satan. Not just talking about evident trials that others can see, although that might be part of it. I'm talking about the inner temptation that Satan will be dealing out this week to those men, to those marriages, to those families. Things maybe they haven't thought about or dealt with in years might all of a sudden surface again. And that is why we must be faithful in praying for our elders. Yes, indeed, throughout the year, but especially this week because Satan's going to be active. Pray for the men and women on our staff. For, pray for our families. Pray, pray for the men and women who just started a year on committees. Pray for our ministry team leaders. Pray for the new believers in our church. Pray for those who have been commissioned because for many, we are on our way into the belly of the beast. And as confirmed in the expectant confidence in those prayers, we need, need not be fearful. We need to be aware we need to put on the armor of God, but we need not be fearful because we are following in the steps of he who has conquered the enemy. He who went into the wilderness, wilderness, who stared Satan down, stood strong in the desert, stayed the course, went to the cross to die and proclaim it is finished. That whoever would believe in the gospel, believe in him as Savior, would have eternal life. Believers, we are more than conquerors. So we see temptation not as something to be feared, but something to be conquered. Listen, the worst they can do is throw you to the wild animals. But who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let's pray.